0: Hello and welcome to Elevating Founders, the podcast for early stage founders to hear the stories behind the change makers and disruptors in the tech sector who are responsible for tackling the world's biggest challenges, brought to you by London Tech Week. I'm your host Sina Sadzade, and in this episode I spoke with Isabel Kenyon. Isabel is the founder and CEO of Calibrate, the modern medical metabolic health business that is changing the way the world treats weight. Calibrate launched in June 2020 and has raised $127.6 million in funding from leading healthcare and consumer investors, including Founders Fund, Tiger Global, Optimum Ventures, Threshold Ventures, Forerunner Ventures, and Redesign Health. Prior to Calibrate, she has led the business operations, growth, and strategic partnerships and communications teams at Capsule, a healthcare technology business rebuilding the pharmacy from the inside out. Before Capsule, Isabel worked at beloved consumer brands in London and New York and was selected to be Forbes 3030 in the retail and e-commerce list in 2015. She began her career as an investment banker in Hong Kong and has graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. An incredible background and it was absolutely incredible talking to her as well. Definitely lived up to the hype. Um, She was given some unbelievable value in this episode and I can't wait to share it with you guys. So without further ado, let's jump into the episode. Hey Isabel, how are you?
1: Good, thanks. How are you? Thanks for having me, Tina.
0: No, very, very good. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. This is an episode that we've been waiting for for so long. So it's amazing to have you on. I I can't wait to speak to you about all the stuff that you've done. So I guess before we jump in, how have like the last 12 months been for you?
1: Hard. <laughs> challenging a lot, I think, like the rest of the world. Um, it's an incredible, incredibly challenging time for anyone to be doing anything and um, to be building a business in the backdrop, I think, has been a whole nother level for me. But I have really, really enjoyed building the team and I think that Ultimately, it's probably been one of the best distractions you could have.
0: (laughs) Before before we kind of jump in, it'd be great to get a bit of a background on what Calibrate is.
1: Absolutely. Calibrate's a metabolic health business, and the mission of the business is to change the way the world treats weight. And so what we do is bring science-backed, evidence-based research about the combination of medication and what's called an intensive lifestyle intervention, a structured program to change the way you eat, sleep, exercise, and manage your emotional health to everyone everywhere in the US with telemedicine. So we allow consumers to access a doctor, a coach, and a 52 week program from wherever they are.
0: That's very, very cool. And I think like so we, we mentioned something before we hit record that was very interesting. You said you talked about how you doubled the business in the space the last sixty days, like what does that mean like how and how did you do that
1: i'm still processing it's one of those things there's a famous quote um from general eisenhower uh planning is essential and plans are useless where we planned and we planned and we planned and that was the plan and that was the growth goal and we still still (laughs) all the plans were useless in the end um because i think when you're doing something like that that you haven't done before it's hard to know what you're what you're what you're getting yourself into and I think that there were things that we did great and that we'll do again. And there were things that we totally messed up that we will not do again or we'll try not to. But one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time with my team on and thinking about myself is like, how do you build a culture that both has accountability and a culture of learning and how do you make it okay for people to make mistakes and to learn and to retro and to figure things out, but also a culture of accountability where you want people to deliver results. And especially in healthcare, I think that can be really challenging where the stakes are really high. And so one of the things that the team's been trying to do is we actually have been starting every meeting with a win, which we've always done. Um, One of our values here is that small wins create big wins. And we're always trying to find like, what, what's the big win? (laughs) What We call it. um, But also what is something that you've learned. What have you learned since last time we met? What have you learned since last time we talked? And sometimes they're personal, sometimes they're professional, but really helping the team double down on making space for learning, which I think is really hard when you're scaling really quickly. Um, Because it's either like, we don't have time to learn or who cares, we got it all wrong. (laughs) Like We won't do any of those things again, obviously. But um, one of the things that a bunch of the leaders on our team are really good at, particularly my head of marketing, really good at just saying like, even when things are going well, Let's double down on like, what did we learn? Because we're going to have to do it again next year. And like it all, in a lot of ways, it repeats and rhymes, right? And so let's make sure that we're we're taking the time to document what did we learn.
0: That's a really interesting point that you kind of highlighted around culture and, and kind of reinforcing that culture of learning and kind of like celebrating those those even small wins, right? And I mean, as the episode goes on, I would love to kind of focus on that because that's a, it's such a core element of what makes up a successful startup, I think. And it's one of those like softer things that people don't really focus on. I think like with startups, especially like a lot of people focus on the data and like, numbers and stuff like that. But this is the softer side of a startup that a lot of a lot of huge businesses even try to replicate. Right. It's, it is. So that means it must be very valuable. But I mean, I'd love to focus on that uh, a bit later in the episode. But I guess like before we jump into your background, what does doubling a business in 60 days actually mean? Like what, what was going on?
1: For us, it meant hiring and training a lot of people. It's a services business at the end of the day. Your coaches, your doctors, celebrate employees. And so it meant getting the team ready to be in a place to treat twice as many members. And then it meant getting every other part of the organization ready, right? When you, when you do something at 2X a scale, we were just talking about this before we started filming, but recording rather, but it is sometimes linearly two times as hard and sometimes it is non-linearly two times as hard and i think figuring out we talk a lot about people process product and what are the people that you need to do that what are the processes that you need to do that how do some of those processes need to fundamentally change at 2x the scale um and then what is the product what's the platform what are the tools that you need to be able to do that
0: that's really interesting so i guess what actually brought you to entrepreneurship in the first place
1: you know i grew up my both of my parents are entrepreneurs. Um, both of my mom's parents are entrepreneurs. I grew up in this household of people who'd built their own businesses and were literally always on the phone. Um, We had car phones before anyone else. My parents were literally always talking to their clients on the phone. And so I just grew up listening to people selling and and building businesses and dealing with the hard parts of building businesses, dealing with managing teams. And, um, you know, like at one point, my dad had hundreds of employees. And I remember being like, That is so hard, Um, but also being really energized and excited by it. I'm an oldest child, so I was always babysitting, and then I turned the babysitting into summer camps, and my first real job, I started running a summer camp for all the kids in the neighborhood at age 11, and people would leave their kids with me, Um, and I ran the summer camp all through middle school and high school, and it got much bigger. I think at the end, we had about 30 kids in the camp, and ultimately, like, just always I think always knew I wanted to run a business and wanted to work in startups. I, I went to Penn where most people at the time, I'm sure it's not the case today, um, worked in wanted to work in finance, right? It was the end goal if you went to Wharton to go work in finance. And so um, I was surrounded by people who were really excited about finance. And I got really excited about investment banking and the way you could see the world and learn more about the world. That way i had studied Chinese through school. And so spent the early part of my career living and working in investment banking in Hong Kong. And just getting to see the world, like we traveled all over Southeast Asia, all over China, and really learned so much. The economies there were booming at the time. They were changing so quickly. They were really open. It was just around the Olympics in Beijing in 2008. And just the speed at which things were changing and developing, the GDP was growing at 8 and 10% a year. Like it was a wild time to be there. And a really smart recruiter called me and said, if you like living in Asia, you're going to like startups and you should go work in startups. And I moved to London and worked at my first startup. I moved back to New York in 2013. I'd grown up outside New York and just loved startups, like loved building businesses, loved the early days, loved building teams, loved figuring things out. And ultimately, like really loved the consumer. Like I opened a store with my mom while I was in college and like loved figuring out the consumer. And I think that for me, that's always been the most interesting thing here. And then the path to healthcare eventually started when I broke my back skiing and was my first real interaction with the healthcare system. And I said, I'm gonna spend the rest of my life fixing this. Like nothing about it makes any sense. And honestly, it looked like one big retail business that should be an e-commerce business to me. And that was the right amount of naivete to have to enter healthcare because otherwise you'd never do it.
0: Wait, 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 tell me, tell me about that. Tell me about that. So you broke your back skiing. And so I guess like that's probably where Calibrate started, like I guess the the origin story of where it came from. But you said something really interesting there. You talked about like, you you want to treat it as an e-commerce business rather than a retail business. Yeah, I spent
1: the first half of my career working in e-commerce businesses. And so I was used to like seamless end-to-end experiences designed around getting a consumer to buy more things. And I couldn't believe that in healthcare, the experience was designed around everything but the consumer. It's like you walk into a doctor's office, I mean, it is so different in the US and the UK, and in the UK, I think it's highly functioning, so this is US specific, but you walk into a doctor's office, you have no idea how much anything costs, you have no transparency into your insurance, what your insurance is paying for, what you're paying for, what the rate is, you have no ability to schedule anything without waiting on hold on the phone with someone, you have no ability to access your records electronically, to transfer them within a doc building is incredibly complicated. So you go see, I had I broken my back and my pelvis. So you go see the back doctor and they have one set of records. You go see the pelvis doctor, they have another set of records. I was taking MRIs multiple times. Like everything is just so wasteful, so frustrating and you're in pain and you're frustrated, right? The most interesting thing to me about the consumer journey in healthcare is how frustrated the consumer is in that moment when they're encountering healthcare, right? And they want it to be simple and they want it to be easy to access and they want it to be purpose-built for them the way the rest of their world is now. And it's not. It's purpose-built for a lot of other stakeholders and the consumers, right? These are B2B businesses for the most part. The hospitals don't make money from you, the consumer. They make money from insurance companies. And by the way, hospitals don't really make money in the U.S., which is a huge part of the problem. Um, But each of these different stakeholders builds for other stakeholders. They're really B2B businesses that lost sight of the consumer a very long time ago. And so at their core, in their DNA, they don't have that direct-to-consumer ethos, right? And I had just spent the early part of my career building direct-to-consumer businesses around the consumer. Whatever the consumer wanted to do, we built. And so I think for me, trying to marry those two ideas seemed so obvious, right? Like Oh, so like consumers choose now, right? We have deductibles in the U.S. We pay for our healthcare out of our paychecks. Like we are the healthcare payer and there's no two ways around it. Like because our employer picks the healthcare plan does not mean that they are paying for the healthcare plan. And I think that ultimately um, there was a massive shift happening in healthcare in the U.S. that ended up being a really interesting moment for me to start working in healthcare.
0: That's a really interesting one. I mean, the thing is, I obviously live in the U.K. as do probably a lot of our listeners. And whenever I hear about like American healthcare, it always brings up a lot of questions for me because it's, it is a, a very different system to the UK. Um, with all the things that happen with insurance and all of this type of stuff that you just talked about. So I guess like, I mean, you lived in the UK and then you went, to the, you went back to New York and it's like, I guess, how did you come about trying to fix that? Because there's so much money involved in, in this, in the healthcare system in the US, a lot of different stakeholders at play that the consumer is like the end I guess the consumer isn't the, the real focus because that's not what they make their money as you mentioned so it's like how do you shift that focus to the consumer
1: I always tell my team two things one start with the consumer put the consumer first build around the consumer and two follow the money right like you have to follow the profit pools in the U.S. you have to figure out how to align incentives in the U.S. and you have to figure out how to play within the boundaries that have been set and then you can change them and you can change them over time, but this is not move fast and break things. This is not like disruptive tech 20 years ago. This is really about saying, how do I navigate existing systems? How do I build fundamentally better experiences from consumer for consumers? There's this big trend now in, in, um, in digital health around what we call B to C to B. So it means start with the consumer, build for the consumer, and then go sell to the payer. And go sell and expand access meaningfully because you've built for the you've built for the consumer. So you've built an experience that the payer ultimately wants, right? Payers are jealous of anyone else's ability to be able to build an actually meaningful relationship with the consumer because they just don't know how. And they find value in it and they think that they will be able to drive value through that relationship, which is true. And so I think for me, that's the really interesting thing here, which is how do you get a team to build for the consumer first, but also build within within the ecosystem and in a way that creates incentives for multiple players.
0: So before we go on to, so I guess, like the, the motivations and building that culture within that team to, to kind like of reinforce all of that messaging that you have, I guess, where does Calibrate come into this whole sort of ecosystem of healthcare within the US?
1: Calibrate's the provider. So today, Calibrate has a team of doctors who work with patients. And today, consumers pay us for those services. Then we bill the medications, which are much more expensive than the services, through insurance. And so we're already working with the ecosystem today and we're driving, call it four or five X the revenue for pharmacies than we drive for actually our own business. And I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle because it means that we can use that as an incentive to align incentives to create a better experience. And so the plan for tomorrow is for payers to start paying for access to the calibrate service based on the outcomes and results that we drive for patients and so for us the north star has always been outcomes it will always be outcomes if this product works consumers will pay for it their employers will pay for it the government will pay for it payers will pay for it if the product works right and so there are plenty of businesses in this category that work because the sales and marketing work and not because the product works and we wanted to do something fundamentally different which was build a product that works because a business that works because the product works.
0: What was the kind of like first step within within this within this journey when it came to actually testing out whether Calibrate was like a feasible sort of like business? Because it sounds like there's a lot of different steps to this, a lot of different parties to please. So it's like, I guess how did you actually test this product before you started to bring it out to the market a bit more?
1: We hired a doctor, we hired a coach, we opened a tiny little doctor's office in a like we work for doctors. And we started seeing patients. we asked our friends and family. I asked my mom if she'd go see patient, if she see the doctor um, and we just started to figure out like what do we want the calibrate clinical pathway to look like How often do we want you to meet the doctor? how often do we want you to share information with the doctor how often do we want to get lab work why where do, how do we ground that in clinical evidence how do we base that in clinical evidence how do we Figure out what the Calibrate program looks like. What pieces do you need to learn about when? How do we make that most relevant for consumers? How do we make that most digestible for consumers? And so we started that really early in the fall of 2019. And then by June of 2020, we were ready to launch the business and we realized we could launch it entirely through telemedicine, which was good because we were at peak COVID and everything was closed and we could deliver the same experience virtually and digitally that we had been in the brick and mortar clinic initially.
0: That's amazing. So, like, how did that during, I guess, the first lockdown and the the pandemic and stuff, like, how did you scale it?
1: I think people talk a lot about product market fit and how special their product must be if they find product market fit. I always say, like, our market was really special. This market is fundamentally broken. And that means that people were just willing to try the next thing. And there was an entire cohort of consumers who, without a single testimonial on the internet, who, without a single record of what we did without a single after picture, without a single story from a member joined. And that's because the market was broken. That has nothing fundamental to do with what the product that we offered. That is because the market was so broken, there was a group of people willing to just try the next thing. And we are so grateful for that group of people because they were. we invited them to be early access members and to give us feedback. And they gave us feedback. They worked with us all the time to refine the product, to refine the messaging, to refine people's objections, to refine to help people understand like these people look like me and it worked for them and it worked for, it could work for me. And I'm just always so grateful to that initial cohort of members who joined before there was a review, right? Like before i yeah. done it. And because of that group of people, the business then started growing organically and through referral. And this is a wildly viral category at the end of the day, when people lose weight, people notice and they ask how you did it. And if you share, then it becomes a really, really viral business. And so over time, it's seen organic go- from the earliest days 100% of the people in the beta clinic right our friends and family but in the you know the earliest days of the launched digital telemedicine business zero percent of our business to ultimately now more than more than 50% of the business because it is like such a fundamentally shareable category if you get it right and you drive results which is why that's always been the-
0: that's amazing that's that's like I mean my initial response there is that it's 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 kind of hard to believe at the beginning especially when you did not have the testimonials and all that stuff because i feel like with my mindset i guess being in the uk is like trust is such a big thing here but you but you're kind of highlighting that the system is so broken that people are willing to try anything new that would sell them that like that sort of like vision so i guess a question yeah, I would love not, to ask is how- It's not
1: a huge group of people. And so as quickly-
0: as Yeah, I know, I know, but it's, still, it's stories, still like- We
1: got testimonials, we shot photographs of them. You know, we'd, we'd have them pay their friends and family to take photographs of them and we'd come up on the website with their words and their stories. Like as soon as we could, we wanted testimonials, we wanted reviews, we wanted people to share their experience. But in the earliest days, you don't, there's just a, there's a baseline where people haven't done it.
0: Exactly. yeah, yeah. I guess like the question I have when it comes to trust and 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 like stuff like that and building that sort of like culture within your team to build those relationships it's like that comes down to effective leadership I would say it's like um you know building motivation and providing that purpose and direction so I guess like we did speak about it near the beginning of the episode but what were the kind of like key values I guess that you found that have led to that key, like the, the success that Calibrate's seen, both in the initial stages and like where it is now. And, and also because there's so many values going on and there's so many like different motivations in this market, it's like, how do you align all those different motivations and values so that you're, you're all fighting for that North Star, as you mentioned?
1: My biggest takeaway from Capsule, which is my previous healthcare startup, is you have to build internal and external alignment on your values and culture. So whatever the brand promises to your consumer has got to be the values by which you operate internally. And if those two things aren't aligned, you will never create a meaningful experience that brings your values to life. And so for us, we picked four things in the beginning and we just live them every day. And I'm a big believer in repetition. I'm a big believer in simplicity. I'm a big believer in making these things come to life for people. And so the, the two that we talk about the most are in it together and real results matter. And how do we just every day make our members feel like they're on a team, like they're not alone, like we're in it together with them? And how do we do that as a team? How do we make people feel like they're supported and set up to do the best work of their careers? And then real results for us is about like celebrating and driving real results and building a culture of accountability, right? And so between those two things, I think we really created a flywheel where we said, this is what the culture needs to feel like. This is how we're going to celebrate it all the time. This is how we're going to start and end meetings. This is how we're going to write about it. And then ultimately for us, it really became about making sure that those things came to life day in and day out. And in the backdrop of a pandemic, in the backdrop of building a 600 person team entirely remotely, in the backdrop of growing a business really quickly, it can be really easy to forget those things. And so I think to me, it comes back to repetition and simplicity. How often can you talk about them? How often can you bring them to life? How often can you make them? Matter?
0: How important is it, do you think, culture?
1: I think it's the entire thing. I don't think anything else matters, particularly in a high growth business today, particularly in the world that we live in with a great resignation, particularly in a place where people move with their feet. right? Like It is so hard to recruit a team. It is so hard to build a business. It is so hard to scale a team. And if people don't really, really value your culture, They'll leave. They'll go somewhere else. <laughs> like, and I think that is the whole thing. And you have to, you have to create opportunity for people, and you have to create a culture that aligns with what your team wants.
0: Did you adapt your leadership at all during the pandemic? 100, uh,
1: 360 degrees. <laughs> like, at, like it was constantly navigating to a new true north, right? Constantly iterating. Like, one is the way that you lead a ten-person team, which is how big we were when we launched, to the way that you lead. Um, I can't remember any other milestones, but a 100-person team, a 300-person team, and today a 600-person team all look really different, right? Like when when I was last January, I was running a 40-person team, and we met every single morning as a team to prioritize what everyone was working on. We were on Zoom every morning. Like what are the big challenges? What are the talkers? What are people working on? Today, I'm lucky if I get to meet with 10 of my team people on my team on Zoom, right? And so you have to just start leading in completely different ways. How do you document what matters? How do you build... like? From the tactical, how do you actually operate the business? How do you measure what matters? How do you share what matters? How do you create shared consciousness? How do you create context? What We call it the unlock at calibrate. What's the why now? Resources and leverage are so important in startups, figuring out like what to do now versus what to do in three months versus what to do in 12 months, and how that thing that you can do could create real leverage for your business now versus in three months. And so, like getting people to just document things again, simplicity, repetition, right? How do you get people to understand what the unlock is? Is so fundamentally more, so much fundamentally more challenging for me now than it was six months ago, 12 months ago, because 12 months ago, we all spent the entire day in constant simpatico talking through everything in real time on the same page all the time. And now people context shift all the time. I context shift all the time. I I lose the ability to me myself connect all of the dots. And so you have to build a team of people who can do that and who are supported in doing that. And I think that is a totally different challenge. And so for me personally, I think the beginning of the pandemic was about being way more vulnerable than I ever had in a leadership role before, opening up more, realizing that people's homes and families are literally part of their workday because it's all one camera and shared background. And that when someone has like undue emotional stress, which everyone on the planet has during this pandemic, there is just like the bar is that much higher for what they trade off work versus personal time for, right? And so you have to make their work that much more meaningful and you have to make the connections at work that much more meaningful. And you just, to me, have to be vulnerable and open in a way that I had never been as a leader before. And well, like I was familiar with like that size team. I had run that size team in another business before, for example, but you're not familiar with one, being a first-time CEO has gotta be, and I'd love to swap notes, but the most challenging thing on the planet because you you've never done it before, and all of these people, whether it's one person that works for you, or ten people that work for you, or six hundred people that work for you, or however many come next, like you are looking to you for leadership and guidance, right? No matter what, you've never been in that seat before because definitionally it's your first time, and I think that that's really challenging. And so in the beginning, I leaned really hard into vulnerability, which I would say is still a tool in my toolkit. Um, And then there's a lot more around structure, around repetition, around writing, around sharing, around just like how you scale you, your time, your perspective, and making sure that the team really still feels um, that connection to the mission every day and that North Star.
0: I love that you mentioned vulnerability. And like when I started my business, I I definitely like, I've learned a lot, uh, you know, actually being a CEO, like what that means and like learning the whole like leadership, like developing that skill set. But one thing I didn't really expect from that journey was like how much I would learn from I guess interacting with people and them looking up to like for leadership from for myself. I didn't expect me to to like learn from that. And I think that's what you've alluded to as well. A big part of the vulnerability also, and I completely agree with you there, I think it's a very underrated skill set for a CEO and a leader for sure, is that you can learn a lot from the people that you work around with when when it comes to the employees. Like not only do they look up to you for inspiration, but I think if you build a good team you you do look for them for, for answers as well, well all the right the time i'm like how do it, you it works it works Mr. both ways. teams
1: teach me how to explain yeah, this it, right it, like
0: yeah exactly so, challenge
1: teach me how to explain like you know i think we talked about this in the beginning of the episode but teach me how to like help people help create a, a culture of learning and a culture of mistakes and a culture of understanding what we can do better next time and documentation understanding what we got right celebrating what we got right how like how do you create time and space for all of these things in a culture where it can be so easy to be like, the dashboard's up and to the right, next, <laughs> right? Like, we did that, next, like new new challenge, next. It can be really, really hard. And I think my team is so much better at that than I am. And it's just been a lot about asking questions and making time and space. And I think one of the things that I've learned so much about myself in the last two years is that the speed at which I operate is is the speed at which the business operates. And so- If I'm pushing really hard and we're moving really fast, like if if I wake up that way, that's how the business will move. And if I intentionally take time, I work with a coach and we've been talking about 90% calibrate speed, what would 90% Isabel speed feel like? And really trying to create intentionality around my expectations and the pace and and the tone and really trying to create that connection for people that it's more important to get it right. It's more important for results to matter. And so ultimately, at the end of the day, like the speed doesn't matter, right? And speed is a is a moat in a lot of ways. And especially in our business where results are the moat and where outcomes are the moat and we're doing that at scale matters, it's really easy to put that before the ultimate result or outcome. And it's so important to be intentional about that and the leaders that i've hired are so much better at that than i am and there is so much to learn and like just very tactically like how did you literally slow that down how did you literally make the time to retro that how did you literally make the space to talk about that and honestly it's what i spent a lot of time with my team on now
0: Mm, i think i i I do really love that answer it's an amazing answer i was going to ask you like what you've kind of learned from because i've learned so much starting as a ceo to where i am now and i'm sure like in a year's time, two years time, whatever, through that experience, I'll learn a lot. So from your journey, like you explained like what you learned in the last two years. What I'd love to know, I guess, like before we wrap up the episode is what's next for Calibrate?
1: We are really focused on, we've always been focused on three things. One, prove that Calibrate works two, prove that it works at scale, and then three, make it available and accessible to as many people as possible. And I think you do the second thing in two ways. One, by just fundamentally changing the conversation and setting the standard of care and saying this is what works and doctors everywhere should be doing it. Doctors in the UK should be doing it. Doctors at health systems in the US who have nothing to do with Calibrate should be doing it. But the second way you do it is by just literally making it more affordable and accessible to people. And so what we're focusing on now is making the business available through employers, through payers, through the government, and just making sure that everyone who needs access to Calibrate has access to Calibrate.
0: So before we wrap up, let's just jump in with some very quick fire questions and then we can, then we can wrap up the episode. It's been an amazing episode. So very, very quickly, quick fire questions. What technology did you find most useful during the pandemic?
1: FaceTime. <laughs> I cannot tell tell you like FaceTime has become my default instead of calling someone I'll just FaceTime them and like look them in the eyes and like no matter what just like you just get such a better read and I think for me, it used to be such a big thing, like let's FaceTime this weekend with like a set schedule of time. And now it's just my default mode of communication. It.
0: No, so. you just do it anyway. Yeah, no schedule. <laughs> <laughs> if you could go to the pub with any entrepreneur, which one would you choose? Bezos. I think that's a pretty common answer, that <laughs> one. What's a startup you are loving at the moment, apart from obviously Calibrate and why?
1: Tia, uh, it's a women's health business in the US, primary care business in the US. And I just love the way that they reimagine the front door of healthcare that they think about this online offline piece they have clinics and also telemedicine they integrate all these different pieces of primary care and of um, wellness into your primary care i love the business
0: and the last question fill in the blank to be a founder you must be
1: resilient oh, yeah, I, think that is, I think that no is a always, pretty common one, one no one everyone says be ready for people to say no be ready for people to say no like it's so, it's like someone telling you your baby's ugly. It's like, it's so. Yeah, ugly. I've heard that it's one before as well. Yeah. Like, what do you mean, no? <laughs> I'm like, I'm spending my entire career building this thing. How do you think, no? And they're like, no. <laughs> and you're like,
0: okay. <laughs> Isabel, it's been so amazing talking about your journey and everything, Calibrate. um I guess, how can people stay in touch with your journey and Calibrate going into the future? Because I'm sure so many people would want to. Check, check out your journey and like where it's going to go in the future
1: find me on linkedin find me on twitter find me on instagram and find calibrate at joincalibrate.com com.
0: sweet amazing isabel it's been such a pleasure talking to you on the elevating founders podcast and i can't wait to stay in touch and speak to you soon about where calibrate's going yeah it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me that is it for this week's episode of Elevating Founders. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, head over to our social channels linked in the show notes to join the conversation or email us at elevatingfounders@informer.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and subscribe to our podcast, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps us out so, so much. Um, that's it from me. I was your host, Sina Sadzada, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much.